I, um, I hear lots of noise. Some of it's disturbing. It's uh, ambulances and things outside, but some of it's delightful and joyful. It's little children. And that tells me Miss Jamie's waiting at the back for some of them. Um, and if you have little children or they know their way back there, uh, now's the time to head out and have a great time uh, together. Speaking of times together, uh, the last time we were together in uh, this section of Acts, and I'd like you to turn there, if you would, this morning, Acts chapter 9, um, <clears throat> an unbelievable change struck most of us. If you were here that day, you thought to yourself, how unlikely, and that would be to put it softly, how unlikely that God would initiate such a, 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 an action um, in the life of the person known at that time as Saul of Tarsus. Um, <clears throat> in his own words, a self-described worst of sinners. Okay, so that's not me picking on Paul or Saul. It's him saying, you want to know a summary statement about me? I was the worst of sinners. So God, in the worst of sinners, Saul, um, began a transformation that would turn not only his name from Saul to Paul, but it would, it would eliminate that first uh, label, worst of sinners, and introduce a different label that he would live out the rest of his life, and that is the great apostle. And he's come to be known as the great apostle, not just by theologians, but by you and me in a practical sense, because we read our Bible and we realize, wait a minute, that's, that's Paul, the apostle. That's Paul. That's Paul. That's Paul. Thirteen times uh, there are 13 letters bearing his human signature. The Holy Spirit chose him to speak to an audience, a gathering of people like Grace Point Community Church in that day. So that's a big deal. Um, it happened as Saul, this transformation that was um, epic, happened as he was making his way from Jerusalem north, we talked about it already earlier in chapter 9, to uh, Syria. Damascus is the capital of that location, north and slightly east of Israel and the, and the Sea of Galilee. And on his way up there, he was there for a, a singular purpose, to wreak havoc, to wreak havoc among people of the way. So he was on a mission to find those people who had already fled Jerusalem because there's a monster on the loose, his name Saul. And they made their way up there, and quite literally as he's approaching the city, you could almost call it a suburb, he's blinded by the light of Jesus Christ. And in a way, in a moment, in a, in a, in a, a, a situation that he could not have created of his own doing, and it couldn't have been man-made in any other fashion, Jesus descended, blinded him, knocked him to the ground on the road to Damascus. And there's a single sentence in chapter 9 that Jesus cries out, calls out loudly, Chapter 9, verse 4, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Um, 
I want to stop for a second and allow me to say something that I don't think in any way is a stretch to say. Uh, when one of God's people uh, takes a hit, when they are persecuted because they belong to Jesus, because they stand up and speak out for Jesus, when they take a hit, and it could be any form, in some countries it's prison time, in other countries it's death, in our country it might be um, people just looking at you, sort of staring at you down a, a long nose, uh, a pointed finger, kind of a, a look of disgust, whatever form it may take, if you wonder how God feels about what you're going through, I think those words say it all. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute? He doesn't point to people. He says, I'm taking that personal. Why do you persecute me? That's good news for you if you're in a spot right now because you're in a situation you do speak up for Jesus and in the words of Peter, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. You need to take that to work on Tuesday after the holiday tomorrow. And if you're being picked on there, you're being harassed because of your position about Christ, your commitment to him, know that those words aren't just true in first century times. They're true now. They've always been true. The spirit of glory and of Christ rests on you. In other words, you're not, it's, it feels bad for you, but Jesus takes it personally. So take that to heart as you, um, as you uh, persevere in your, in your trial, in your challenge. So Saul here is dead determined to rid the world of Christians. And Christ steps in the way with what I'm going to call this morning um, a course correction for the ages. Yeah, we would say he does a 180 here. It, he, didn't, he couldn't even do that. He was flattened and blinded by the light, knocked off his feet. He hears that voice, and then Jesus says, I am Jesus to the question, who are you, Lord? Saul asked in the moment. Now get up, Jesus says, and go into the city, Damascus, and I will tell you um, what you must do. You're going you're gonna to learn who's speaking to you and what my mission or purpose is for your life. So here's the deal. Um, with, the f with the friends that were with him who were no friends of people of the way, they were not Christian friends. That's not the good friend. These are friends that are party to his persecution of Christians. They pick him up and they carry him on into Damascus. And while there, he's still dazed. So he's not eating anything. He's dazed, unable to see anything. And then there came a knock at the door. And, um, and we're told that um, the knock belonged to a man named Ananias, who was told that Saul was staying on a particular street called Straight Street. Go there and you're supposed to talk to this man Saul. Well, a couple of thoughts about Ananias. He was a good guy. It turns out he's a devout disciple, we're told. So he loved Jesus, and he had, in fact, been briefed by Jesus what he's about to encounter when the door that he's knocking on opens. 
Uh, look with your own eyes and you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, he says, uh, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, verse 11, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man by your name, Ananias. And, um, and, and, and he's come to place his hands on you and restore his sight. He, Saul knows that. God briefs Ananias that that's what he's about to encounter. And so he goes to him in verse 15. He's, he, he comes to these words. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to Gentiles and their kings, as well as to Jews, people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer in my name. So as directed, he goes. Look at verse 17. He went to the house. He entered it. He, he did something that you just got to imagine. Step out of it. Don't just see it as a fluid thing. He comes in, he lays eyes on a man that has a horrid reputation. I don't, I don't read anything about fear and trembling. He was following the instructions, Ananias was. But here in front of him is Saul, and he, he lays his hands on Saul. Notice verse 17, placing them on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And then he got up, was baptized, took some food, and regained his strength. This is a powerful, powerful moment. I got to guess, uh, if I can read into it a moment, I think Ananias was like, oh, Oh, wow. This is amazing. This is incredible. Just like God said it would be. And, and, and those scales, I, I want the worst way to know what they were, but they're probably gross, so I don't want to touch them, you know. <laughs> you know, you read something like that and go, what? You know? So, so, so this moment um, is, is involved with the Holy Spirit moment. It's not just Ananias touching him. It's the Holy Spirit in that moment coming upon this man who was on his way moments ago, days earlier, to kill Christians. He even calls him brother, Saul. Wow, big moment. But topping that moment is what Saul does next. The very first thing he does is both straight up bold and I'm going to say in no small way risky. If I've done any job in conveying to you, this guy was public enemy number one, Saul, if you were a Christian at that time. You laid low. You absolutely, if you knew he was anywhere near the place you lived or worked or were gathered, you stayed away from that place because he's trouble. So, so the very next thing that happens here is, is astounding to me. At once, we're told, verse 20, at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on the name of Jesus? 
And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? It's like a scene out of um, Lion King. And everybody's okay with this, right? It's a terrible moment. These people are putting, they're connecting dots here in verse 22. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. Okay, let's, let's take all of this in. Let's, let's establish something. If you're writing things down, write this down because Paul tells about it later when he wrote the Philippian church in chapter 3. He says, I am a zealot. In fact, if you want the definition of zealous, zealot that Paul was landing on, I persecuted Christians. That's a zealot, okay? I was passionate about the law of God, and anybody that represented a threat to God was, was going to have to uh, answer to me. So he's a zealot, right? So he wasted no time as a zealot to tell people about what he just discovered. He just realized, oh, Jesus is God. I had no idea. He's the son of God. I thought he was some sort of heretical new religion. He even says so in 1 Timothy chapter 1. I was, I was clueless. I acted in ignorance. So this zealot um, wastes no time talking about Jesus, uh, about what he discovered. And what he discovered, we just read in verse 20, this Jesus who I sought to silence is actually the Son of God. There's a second thing you need to know. It's probably already on your mind. He was a feared predator. Saul was. Which meant people would potentially run from him or turn on him. If you were cornered by him, you thought it's him or me. It's going down right now. I'm not sure how it's going to turn out. You'd preferably run from him, flee from him. Or if necessary, you would fight him. You would turn on him. Well, it turns out they did both. Um, his reputation was clear to most. That's why verse 21 stands out to me. They're asking questions. Isn't he? Isn't this guy the same guy? And then it goes on to say, and hasn't he? See those words also in verse 21? They're, they're, they're connecting this information in a, in a coherent kind of way. We're... We're hearing weird things, and I think it's, just say the word, a trap. I think this guy's just chumming up, and then he's going to pounce. Uh, even so, Saul grew, verse 22 says, stronger and stronger and more persuasive in his presentation of Jesus as the Savior Messiah. However, um, to me, this feels a little bit like a playback uh, to the days of Peter and John. Um, they were told by the Jews in Jerusalem, uh, quit this chatter about Jesus or you're going to pay a price. Not once, but twice they were told that. We have here uh, Saul with different Jews. They're in Damascus, not Jerusalem. But these 
these Jews um, have this plan. They're, they're going to get rid of this person because days before we were allies going after Christians. Today, you're trying to convert us to the same false religion was the thinking among those in Jerusalem. So look on in verse 23 and 4, and you'll see exactly where this plot comes from. After many days had gone by, they had had enough. These Jews, they, they cooked up a conspiracy among themselves to kill him, we're told. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night, they kept close watch on the city gates in order to take advantage of the moment and kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. There's a great um, um, a professor at Dallas Seminary, uh, Stanley uh, Toussaint, and he brings this scene together in, in some simple language. See if you don't see kind of an irony woven into this. So Saul's plan for persecuting Christians in Damascus took a strange turn, Toussaint says. He had entered the city blind and left in a basket. Ironically, he, the persecutor, had become the persecuted. So there, 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 there's a, an irony. Wow, did the tables turn, we would say. Days earlier, he was the guy that was, uh, was after Christians. Now, they have a plan to kill him, and they're looking for the opportunity to carry it out. Um, I want to I take us back for a second to a scene in a recent message where we talked about this very important biblical principle. And it's a principle that is in play here, but it's a principle that you and I, I think, can tap into and find strength from on a kind of a regular basis. And the principle is something like this. Some, something terrible, we, we talked about this when um, a devout Jesus lover named Stephen was martyred. So back in um, chapter 7 of Acts, a, a, a terrible development takes place that leads to something terrific. And we talked about it in detail. There was, at that time, and it continues into chapter 9 here and into the coming chapters, there's an evangelistic explosion that comes as a result of that. Remember that? So Stephen martyred, everybody just staggering around in shock and grief and sorrow and all that comes with that. One of our own fell for believing in Jesus. And, and, and then it, it's like the Holy Spirit says, and I'm going to use that in profound ways that you can't imagine. So something terrible turned into something terrific. We talked about that. It's the principle of Romans 8.28. We know that in all things, terrible, terrible things even, God works together for the good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. It's the same exact principle here, the Romans 8.28 stuff. So I bring that up right here because if you or someone you know is in the crosshairs as Saul, this brand new Christian, a new Jesus follower, is in the crosshairs of guys that were friends a few days earlier who are now gunning for him. 
they want him eliminated. If you're that kind of person today, um, and 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 you you have people going after you, I think a good prayer would be to ask God to, uh, what is it, verse uh, twenty five, to ask for a basket, right? You're in a bad spot. You know, God, Saul was in a bad spot. Bring, bring a basket my way, would you? And while you're at it, here's a suggestion. I don't know um, how formal you tend to be or not be in your prayer life. What about simple one-word prayers? What, what your situation is, you, you know they're after you, whoever that might be. You're stuck. You have no way out. And, and maybe a prayer like, what's this about, God? Help me understand this. Or, or why is this going on, God? Um, how long is this going to happen? And, and, um, and while you pray those prayers, here, here's a suggestion. We're going to actually sing this song a little bit later. Um, realize that he is the way maker. He's the one that even in an impossible situation you might be facing, he says, no, I've got a way out. I've got to plan through this situation. He's the way maker, the miracle worker, the promise keeper, the basket weaver, can I say? The light in the darkness. Isn't that Jesus? And we trust him in those moments that he's going to come through. My very favorite, it's always been my favorite, is... Um, Asaph, in Psalm 77, verse 19, he's talking about the most um, famous miracle in the Bible, which is the Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea, all right? I, I base that on the number of times it repeats in the, in the narrative throughout the Bible, Old and New Testament. It's like this, this miracle that God never stopped talking about, Okay? I would put Jesus' resurrection right next to it or above it. But here's the deal. Asaph in Psalm 77, 19, this happened millennial ago when Moses put his staff in the water and pff, water's parted, everybody went through, and you know the whole story. If you don't, read Exodus again. But Asaph's looking back on it, and he says, you, God, made a pathway, a road through the sea, a pathway through the mighty water. So this was not, you know, science wants to say it was just a shallow little, um, you know. No, it's the, it's the Red Sea. It's big. It's deep. And you can't get over it, and you can't get around it, and you can't go under it. And God says, but I can take you through it. All right? So 77, 17, uh, 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 Psalm 77, 19 says, you made a way through the sea, a pathway through the mighty waters. Listen for it. A pathway no one knew was there. So very few times does somebody go, oh, you know, God, I was in a real tight spot. And, I, and, and then God pulls it, pulls it out, pulls, pulls you through it, clears the sea. Rarely, rarely does somebody say, you know what, I, I saw that coming. How many of those, we don't know how many, a million Jews stood there and watched that happen? How many do you suppose went, yeah, I knew he had that in the bag. Yeah, yeah I pulled a rabbit right out of the hat right there. No. 
But imagine the impact on their faith. Your faith. My faith. I'm stuck. There's no way out. People would, what, what I think the Bible's saying is just as Saul was going to die, these guys were waiting. They were watching at the gate of the city of Damascus. There he is. Shoot him. And God said, no, I got a basket. He's, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have some of these bros, your new friends, they're going to lower you in a basket. And we'll do it at night, and you'll be long on your way. No one will know where you went. And he does it still. Um, there is a mystery I want to tell you about quickly. Um, uh, and, and point out maybe, um, and there's a purpose for it. Uh, we're told next in the narrative here, Lay him down or let him down in a basket. See how verse 25 ends at the opening in a wall. And then when he came to Jerusalem, so there's a little complexity here that you wouldn't know just reading verses 25 to 26. But I want to suggest to you that there was something significant that took place between those two verses. I'm not making this stuff up, but I'm going to turn to Galatians chapter one to show you exactly what I'm talking about. So there was... Um, he is leaving Damascus, verse 25. He arrives in Jerusalem, verse 26. Everybody with me on that? So just so you know, it's not sleight of hand. If you would turn to Galatians, just chapter 1 for a second. It's Galatians and then Ephesians. Um, I want to read it for you. And this is, of course, one of the 13 letters that Paul, the apostle, wrote. Happens to be the first letter he wrote in A.D. 49, about 10 or 15 years after what we're reading about in Acts 9. He had gone to Galatia, Asia Minor, think Turkey, modern-day Turkey. He had gone there to share the gospel in four different locations, and that was on his first missionary journey. And he wrote this letter to them, Galatians, just before the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. We're going to get there. But he wrote this letter because there was this damaging doctrine that had swept into the church. And it was the doctrine that basically boiled down to, yeah, Jesus is groovy like a G beach party movie, but you need to keep the law too. Okay, let me make it simple. They, the, the gospel says Jesus, period. That's how you get saved. Jesus, period. Galatian people had morphed that belief into Jesus, we're okay with Jesus, plus. And that was a problem. So Paul is writing these people, and he, and he goes back to the scene we're at in Acts 9. And in chapter 1, verse 13, pick up with me. For you, for you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. Watch, listen closely now. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. Make no mistake about it, that was his purpose. I was advancing in Judaism, verse 14, beyond many of my own uh, countrymen, people, uh, people of my own age, and was extremely zealous for the tradition of my fathers. That's why I call him a zealot. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me, road to Damascus, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, 
My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go, it says up to Jerusalem. It, it, from Damascus, it would have been down to Jerusalem. I did not go to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was. But I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, which is another name for the apostle Peter. And I stayed with him just a little over two weeks, 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles except Jim, (laughs) James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing you is no lie. The biggest question I have, we're trying to understand what what was Paul doing for three years where he was in Arabia, he says so. By the way, Arabia, just so you're clear on where it is, Jerusalem's here, Galilee's here. Northeast of Galilee is Damascus. Arabia, just keep on going, and it's south and slightly further east. That's the, that's the topography, if you will. And he spent three years there, he says. But my questions have to do with what was, what was he doing for three years? And that quickly moved me to the better question. What was God doing in Saul during those three years to make him Paul? Answer, a lot. A lot. We're not told specifics either. We can only speculate. But before you cast away my presentation, consider this. We don't know specifics about Moses, who had 40 years as a shepherd. We know a little bit about it. He got married, but we know very little about those 40 years that he spent before God brought him back to be the voice to announce to Pharaoh, let my people go. Oh, while we're thinking about those silent years, think about Jesus. The Gospels tell us nothing about 18 years of his life. Nothing. Not one word. From when he was 12 until he was 30. We don't, we don't know anything. But, but it's fairly certain that during those, let's call them silent years, in camping speak, it's off the grid. In those years, God was, they, they paid off profoundly in all of these lives. Saul became Paul. Moses became this fugitive turned rescuer, deliverer, the man God used. And Jesus, it speaks for himself. And he learned obedience by the things he suffered. We learned so much from looking at his life, but we don't know it in real time, what happened in those 18 years. We just know God was at work. Which brings up this issue. Um, Do you know the word doldrums, when I say doldrums. So it means the wind's not blowing. It's like stagnant air. In maritime speak, it means there's not a, if you're in a sailing ship, there's not a wind blowing the sail. You're stuck. Or there's not a current in the water. It's that windless, currentless place in the ocean, and there's a few of them uh, to point to. It's kind of a hard place to navigate 
And who likes just sitting there? Like if you go to raft a river, you may not want category five, like like um, white water, but who wants category nothing? You know, you just sit there and go, oh, here, oh, I made some progress, a little bit more. You know, it's no fun. But when you're talking about this, the, the times where the doldrums happen to us spiritually, where you feel stuck spiritually, you want to keep moving forward. You want to take the next step with Jesus, and you find yourself going, no, it's not happening. My advice, based on this presentation, don't, don't give up. Sit up. And, and, and pay attention. Uh, uh, show up. Say, God, I'm, how many have had a quiet time that didn't go anywhere? If you're new to Christianity, quiet time is what we call a time where you have your Bible out. I'm serious when I say this. And you open your Bible and say, God, I want to hear your voice today. I want to read this passage. Talk to me. Talk to my heart. And, and, you, and, you do, and you sit there and you sit there some more. And then you're into an hour now and nothing's happening. And your mind's just over here and here and here and here. And finally you just go, oh, that didn't, that didn't work today. Ever done that? Okay, you're all looking at me like, if you say you have, Pastor, we're going to have to you have issues. I have. Where you just get stuck and, and you, you just go, what, what's going on here, God? God's at work. God was at work in Arabia in... In Saul, and, and well, we pick up a hint of it um, at the end of this passage. So um, don't give up in those silent years where nothing's happening because God's going to come through. And, um, and, and we'll see it right now, verse 26. So three years have gone by. And when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. Of course, you would expect this because of who, who Saul is. And there's a group of people that, didn't, uh, they, that he got a, uh, Peter got in a tangle with earlier. He talked and debated with Hellenistic Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the believers learned of this, look at verse 30. They took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. It's completing the circle. He's come to Jerusalem. Now he goes west to Caesarea on the Mediterranean, and they put him on a ship and, and send him home to Tarsus. He stayed there, most believe, at least 10 years. Um, when he came to Jerusalem, I don't see confetti here. I don't see a parade. A hero's welcome? Not hardly. Three years have gone by. Why, why not more... Affirmation. Well, they haven't seen him. No one's heard from him. And here he is. 
Here's a principle to follow, to remember. Change isn't always warmly welcomed. If you're a new believer, um, don't, don't panic when people go, yeah, you found religion, did you? That'll happen. I have people in my life. I was one of them. I, I uh, yeah, I could tell you stories. We don't have time. Thankfully. <laughs> um, Saul had been out of the news for years. Yet the hurt that he had caused previous to that to Christians ran deep, which explains why they're going, how can I know you're different? How can I believe your story? I'm not convinced. You could be a wolf in sheep's clothing. We heard that one. Um, so they're understandably, verse 26, slow to warm up to him. Um, so he's friendless. It's just that's, what, that's how life was when he returned to Jerusalem. He's friendless. So God sends to Saul a friend, someone who believed in Saul when most people were wary. He goes by the name Barnabas. That's why I got to read verse 27 again. So Barnabas took him. He's trying to get in close and have a conversation and coffee or tea or something with his friend, with people that he'd like to become friends. No one bit. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. It's just a beautiful picture. Um, Barnabas is a guy that shows up back in chapter 4. His name was Joseph. But if you were to look at verse 36 in chapter 4, you would see that the disciples actually named him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. It's in his DNA to be an encourager. So it's no wonder, we're going to get to this later in chapter 13, guess who was Saul, now Paul's, first missionary traveling companion? Barney, Barnabas, Barnabas. I, you wonder, how do I relate to the Bible? Sometimes I just have to put it in names like, hey, Barney, let's go. Let's get on a boat and let's go tell people about Jesus. That's what I call him. I've never called a friend Barnabas. But I go, hey, Barney, let's go. My best friend, Barney Santos, growing up. There you go. Um, here's the deal. I... Um, I have more to say, but I want to ask you some questions. Do you do that? What Barnabas did for Saul. Do you just grab him, put your arm around him and go, hey, bro, come with me. They, they trust me. Um, I'll advocate for them. Can I tell you something before you answer? This church is loaded with Barnabas. You've got, many of you have the Barnabas gene. You really do. In fact, I've been so impressed by that in you. You, you, you wouldn't let COVID mess with you. You, you scoffed at COVID. So we're going to get through this, Pastor. 
People were going to be together again. God is not off his throne. Let's stay strong. Let's stay steady. Let's persevere. And that came from Barnabas after Barnabas. Some of you could conduct a clinic on encouragement. Thank you for doing it. I just want to tell you, I love you for that. You, you Barnabases are why we're still uh, a going concern. You're, you're amazing. And can I tell you what? It's not just what you say. It's, you're not falling asleep on Sunday unless I'm really bad. Some of you right now, you're just like, you know, you're, it's almost a, a look of, keep going, Pastor. I'm just saying so many honest things today. I wanted you to know, sometimes when I, I have so much on my heart and, I, and I'm looking at the clock and I just, I have violence sometimes in my heart. <laughs> the cloth. You know. Take my watch and throw it away. But you know what, you Barnabases? You don't go, hey, bro, you know, you were out of fuel. You should have landed it, man. That became darn near a crash landing. You, you, don't, you don't do that. You go, dude, you were on it. The Holy Spirit was speaking. Keep going. And I just thank you for that. I, I really do. I, I mean that for our staff. All of us have had to work through a whole bunch of stuff for a long time. And you have had to as well in your own life. And, but, but we have Barnabases here. Um, I'm just going to um, add one more word about Saul. Because I think it, you know, uh, we're already, we were told uh, uh, back in verse 16, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer. Ananias learned that, right? And... Um, and, and I, I'm just going to say, you know, this is a hard start for Saul, in my opinion. I got real personal with this this week. And meeting, meeting those he once sought to murder was not easy. Um, and it's true. The path of suffering was very long and painful for the apostles. I've told you about 2 Corinthians 11. If you haven't read it, make this the day you do or this the week. You'll come to like verse 28. There's a whole bunch of stuff there that I, I tend to just go, I'm out, I'm done, I can't, I can't go on. Beaten, shipwrecked, you know, held at gunpoint, knife point, whatever you want to call it. He had a list that was a mile long. But at the end, there's this little verse that most people close the book by that time. Yeah, it's verse 28, I think, verse 29. He says, on top of all this stuff, I have the constant concern for all the people in the churches on my heart. And I know that. I know a little piece of that as your pastor. And I'm not, I don't say that to say pity me or anything. Um, I say that because I relate to uh, some of the hardness, some of the challenge and difficulty that Saul went through. There's a British pastor and evangelist uh, by the name of Alan Redpath. And he's well-remembered. He's well-remembered for a lot of things. But these words he spoke describe 
Paul to the T, Saul. And I think they describe more than him, many of us. He said this, when God wants to do an impossible task, he takes an impossible person and crushes them. Have you been crushed? I suspect more than a few would say, yeah, I have. The wound is real and raw. The hardest crushing, aside from this past year, with my Debbie's suffering, took me way back to, um, to when we lost a, a baby. Um, and that, that's like over 30 years ago. And um, I was done. I, I thought that can't, I have no explanation for that in the Bible. I wouldn't have been a good audience to a message like this in those days. And I resigned as a pastor at the church I was at. And I tossed my keys, actually. I remember doing it on Chuck's desk and said, I'm done. And he, and he looked up and said, uh, can, we, can we go to lunch before you pack your books? And I said, yeah, but I'm done. Because he knew that what had happened. And we went to lunch, and he said, I was describing how I'd lost my faith. And here I am, a pastor, and I don't even like my product. Right? The analogy, you know, you're selling, you're peddling God. Well, I don't even like God right now. That's how it felt. And he wasn't, you know, tipped over and give me your keys quick and get out of here before you do something regrettable. I said, Chuck, I don't, I don't feel... Uh, I don't feel uh, qualified to pastor anymore. If people knew what I think about God right now, you would run me out of town by nightfall. And he looked at me and says, Steve, I have to disagree with you. You have never been more qualified than you are right now to be a pastor. So you, it's okay for you and Debbie to go away and mourn go through it be crushed I wish I could take some of that for you but I want you to know that crushing is qualifying you immeasurably more than any class in seminary or internship or pastorate and I think it's true and no one no one knows that more than Jesus. And I, um, I think now's the time for us to take communion and remember it was through his crushing that we have life, forgiveness, hope. 